Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are again very fortunate to be joined by our guests from the uh, the past seven episodes, Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg. And you know, by this time, pretty much everyone should feel like Dale and Ken are our best friends. But to, to bookend our series of conversation with these two guys, I wanted to give them an opportunity to uh, remind us of their uh, their career participation in the waterfowl conservation enterprise. They've been in a number of stops along the way, and so I think it'd just be appropriate again to remind people of their. Uh, the important roles that they have played. So, uh, Ken, let me start with you. Sure, Mike. I was introduced to the world of waterfowl uh, as a as a, a young boy in northeast Arkansas, and took that interest with me to the coastal marshes of Louisiana, where I got my graduate degree uh, at LSU. And uh, uh, after getting out of school, I spent ten years working as a waterfowl biologist, uh, three in the state of Mississippi, and seven in the state of Missouri and was able to serve on the technical section where I had the absolute pleasure and, and great opportunity of rubbing shoulders with some of the, the giants in the waterfowl management world. Uh, after a short period of time uh, away from the formality of the flyway councils and tech sections, I did come back as a member of the council uh, and served in that capacity for uh, about about 10 years. Uh, in the late 1990s, I uh, retired from the Department of Conservation and went to work for Ducks Unlimited, where I worked uh, uh, the first 10 years of my career with DU at the Southern Regional Office in Jackson, Mississippi. And in the last seven years, I worked out of the central office in Memphis, where I was involved with uh, uh, overseeing the work of all four of Ducks Unlimited's uh, uh, regional offices. And uh, uh, that gave me the introduction to the importance of habitat and managing habitat, and uh, uh, I'll be for forever grateful for the opportunity that uh, the states of Mississippi and Missouri and the organization Ducks Unlimited provided me. And Dale, the same opportunity for you. Recap your professional career for us, if you would. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, I had the great fortune uh, in the early 1970s to be able to work for Iowa's waterfowl biologist, uh, Dick Bishop. Um, it was at that point in time that I got to ban birds and nightlight ducks and all, all the really cool stuff that uh, many of us got in this business to, to do. Um, was able to go to grad school then at Michigan State uh, under Harold Prince and some, some good friends there. Uh, was uh, really fortunate to be hired when Ken decided he wanted to be administrator in Jeff City. Uh, that opened up a waterfowl job in the state of Missouri. And uh, I had the great fortune to be able to uh, serve in that uh, capacity as Missouri's waterfowl biologist for 25 years, went to the, the central office. Um, uh, I didn't learn from Ken, uh, but I went to the central office, uh, was uh, responsible for the uh, the science division for five years before I uh, put a, a professional capstone on my waterfowl career by coming to Dustin Limited as chief scientist in, uh, in 2007. Um, Still doing an occasional project with Ducks Unlimited, but at this point in time, I'm uh, enjoying the flexibility of retirement um, and uh, and enjoying uh, recording podcasts with you. Yeah, yeah, it turns out you're pretty darn good at that. And so that's what happens when you show skill levels. You keep getting asked back. So thank you for that, Dale. Uh, and and I, I wanted to 
give you guys a chance to remind people of your your professional credentials, your careers, because I mean, if it it certainly has should have come out by now in the length of our conversation, the depth of our conversation, the expertise that you have, the institutional knowledge that you have, uh, and certainly your commitment to helping do some of the research uh, to get us back into the early parts of the 20th century. Uh, so yeah, I just felt it was appropriate to give that kind of a recap. So thank you for that. Um, and let's pick up where we were with the last episode. Uh, we had we'd concluded that episode talking about the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. We had also spoken about the stabilized regulations experiments of the of the early 80s and, and how that was a the, the 1980s in general was a significant time in the, the changing of the way some we, we thought about some aspects of this. But but we want to go back to the 1970s because we breezed through that era. Uh, in terms of what was happening with harvest regulations. And there were a few other issues that are worth talking about here. And, and Dale, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this first question to you. And there's going to be quite an opportunity to, to freelance with this one to talk about aspects as we feel appropriate. But it relates to the increasing use of zones and splits and perhaps even some other regulatory options at that time to... Uh, adapt our uh, harvest uh, our harvest regulations to t- to make to, to provide opportunities for our, our hunters so what can you tell us about the expansion of the use of zones and splits what was behind those uh, and I know the uh, people were starting to think about some distributional changes of waterfowl at that time so where would you like to start with this conversation well Mike um, I think we mentioned in an earlier episode that just by the nature of uh, waterfowl and migration uh, internationally, uh, how habitat uh, is distributed uh, differently from the breeding grounds all the way to the winter, how much it changes from year to year, um, and how opportunities in some states, by the nature of their habitat and all, are quite a bit different than others. And so just by the nature of the beast, we're dealing with a distribution of birds and a distribution of opportunity. They're not equitable, if you will, uh, whatever term that means, but but they're certainly not equal. There's been an effort over many, many years to um, try to make at least opportunity, if not uh, um, a potential for more equitable harvest, um, whatever you might want to call it, more fair, if you will. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe. There's a number of terms, whether it's fair, equitable, um, traditional, uh, any number of different terms used over the years that account for the efforts over uh, time to do things like uh, the experimental teal season that we talked about. Here's uh, birds that migrate early, generally not available during the regular season. So why not provide opportunity to to hunt teal in in some states? There was an effort um, to provide a, a September season in Iowa for a while. That was an opportunity to taking days out of their regular season in September to shoot birds regardless of uh, their waterfowl species. There was an effort in Mississippi to extend the season to provide opportunity because the birds didn't get there till quite a bit later. And so over time, there's been a number of different efforts to provide opportunity through um, special seasons, whether it be for scop, for teal, you name it, that made things, at least in some people's perspective, fair, seeking perhaps more equal opportunity, if you will, 
that has gradually uh, proliferated, if you will, into systems of zones and splits so that you manage either in geography at a scale smaller than statewide or managing opportunity in time through seasons that are split, early days, mid-season days, late days, that account for when birds are available in certain types of habitats and for hunters that uh, hunt with different styles, uh, big open water or rivers late season versus early season marshes versus field uh, hunting, for example. Um, so there's a lot of different styles. Uh, there's a lot of different preferences. Um, if there's 100 hunters involved, there'll be 110 different views about what the season ought to be and, and what's best for me. Guaranteed that this year is going to be different than next year. And so there's always almost a, a chase your tail type um, aspect to uh, splits and zones. And they have gradually been used in greater and greater degree to provide for at least what's perceived to be equitable opportunity, maybe not equitable or traditional harvest, but to change the opportunity to hunt birds during certain times and places and dates and the like. Dale, defining or measuring what is traditional uh, or equitable is nearly impossible, would you say? It is. Uh, it is. We actually had, uh, especially during some of the early years, as we dealt with season structures and, and uh, regulations packages under adaptive harvest management, uh, spent time on, uh, well, how would you define equitable? How would you define uh, traditional? And so there was a lot of discussions, uh, as you might imagine, the, the answers to that um, are myriad, uh, whether you're from different states, uh, have different hunting opportunity or whatever. And so, so yeah, it's, it's really difficult to define. Um, terms used are equitable, equal, traditional, um, those types of things. None of them are well-defined. It's kind of eye of the beholder. As you mentioned at the very outset, it is the nature of what comes along with the management of and the appreciation for the pursuit of the passion for a, a resource that is migratory and that is highly mobile and that responds to variations across the habitat and or across the landscape in both space and time. And uh, often we that that is one of the most frustrating aspects of managing the resource to help satisfy the, the desires of the people, but it is also responsible for the success of those populations and the, how they are to able to constantly adapt to an, an incredibly dramatic and rapidly changing landscape. And so we have to. I think it's okay to both appreciate and be frustrated by that characteristic of this resource. Would you say so, Dale? Uh, there's no question, Mike. Uh, it's important to acknowledge also that many of those changes are occurring at a rate faster than we can keep up with it. And so in some respects, we're almost chasing our tail with changes in bird distribution, changes in hunter numbers and their distribution. Um, there's a whole lot of things going on out there, many of them at a rate faster than we can uh, respond to. Dale, uh, I want to ask you one final question here on the zones and splits, and then I want to get some thoughts from, from Ken. With the proliferation of the zones and splits, as you talked about, I, I think uh, there are some notes here that remind me that the Fish and Wildlife Service eventually said, hey, we need to kind of rein this in a little bit. Let's let's work off of a limited set of options with regard to zones and splits. Can you recap those a bit for our listeners that may be interested? As you might imagine, uh, as we came out of the 1970s and 1980s, um, 
there was almost annual efforts by one state or another or one flyway to another or within a flyway, uh, efforts to uh, add a zone, um, change the number of splits that were allowed, uh, the numbers of days, you know, any number of different uh, uh, pretty creative uh, solutions to this question of, of, of equal opportunity or, or whatever. Uh, so the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, to their credit, uh, said, guys, um, if you're changing these on an annual basis, our ability to measure the impact is really hampered uh, to the point of, of being impossible. And so they established in 1991 um, uh, a rule, if you will, that uh, you can change your zone and split configuration only every five years. And so states at that point had to select on year one what their zone and split configuration would be and live with that for the next five years. Um, what that's enabled us to do is over time at least have some semblance of stability in season structure so that you could measure whether or not uh, the distribution of harvest changed dramatically uh, from year to year, from state to state, or whatever it might be. Um, so it, I think it was an important addition um, whether or not, given the dynamics of birds and migration, hunting conditions year to year and so on, uh, we've been able to evaluate any clear impact. Uh, I'm not sure. I do know that over the last uh, 25 years plus, there have been a lot of different changes in the numbers of zones allowed, the numbers of splits allowed, and uh, it, it can get to be quite a, a, a checkerboard in time and space uh, anymore. Ken, I want to come to you now and talk about the the 1960s as, as sort of an era when some of these very significant changes in waterfowl distributions, waterfowl migration patterns began. And that, I believe, is part of what we were hearing Dale talk about with regard to a desire to get a bit more creative with our zones and splits and try to provide our hunting opportunities that match with the timing of when the birds were arriving. And certainly when you see some long-term, there are some changes in bird distributions and timing of those distributions uh, that can lead to that level of creativity. So uh, geese, Canada geese, I think uh, specifically were one of the first groups of birds where we started to see some fairly uh, significant changes in the distributions. And you were around as a tech representative, I believe at that time. So can you tell us what that, what was going on then and what it was like being part of those discussions? Well, these, these changes, particularly as they related to Canada geese, probably began in the 40s and 50s. Uh, at one time, Canada geese in the central part of the United States, and you know, I would say including the three easternmost flyways, migrated through the fall into wintering areas, uh, coastal uh, wetlands of Texas and Louisiana, uh, on into to Florida and, and maybe Georgia and the Carolinas. But in the 40s and 50s, uh, the numbers of those birds that migrated into those more southern areas declined. And at the same time these declines were occurring, refuges, particularly national wildlife refuges north of the what were considered to be the traditional wintering grounds, uh, saw increases in populations of Canada geese. And there were uh, lots and lots of uh, discussions over that time about a term that uh, many of us uh, still have bad dreams about called shortstopping. The implication was that uh, these birds were stopping because of directed management efforts to increase numbers of birds in Midwestern and Northern areas at the expense of, uh, of birds going on to the South. 
over the course of the years, we have learned an awful lot about about uh, this change. There's no doubt that it that it occurred. But for instance, in Canada geese in the in the Mississippi Flyway, it was determined that uh, that segment of the population that continued to go south had uh, harvest rates, uh, band recovery rates, uh, two to three times higher than those that uh, uh, decided to spend the winter in Illinois or Missouri, or uh, in the case in the in the in the Central Flyway of Kansas and maybe maybe. Uh, maybe Nebraska. So, uh, and, and, and over time, I think we have come to accept the fact that these changes were primarily related to changes in the landscape. When those Canada geese used to find their way in, into Louisiana, for instance, to spend the winter, uh, they wintered on the coastal marshes. The advent of, of agriculture north of there, particularly in Missouri and Iowa and uh, Nebraska, Kansas, and places like that, uh, those birds found that they could make a living on soybean fields and, and corn fields. And if there were places that were provided for protection, that made it even easier for them to do that. But uh, for many, many years, uh, there was lots of arguments. And, and in fact, there were regulations that were set in some of the key concentration areas, particularly in Illinois and Wisconsin and Missouri, where there were actually quotas established. And there were very sophisticated methods of set up to be able to, uh, to actually evaluate the harvest and close the season uh, on a 24-hour notice when that quota had been, had been achieved. And that just added to the to the survival rates of those birds that were in those concentration areas to the north, uh, but it did not satisfy the concerns of those folks in the south that no longer saw Canada geese coming in there. One of the things that I think kind of helped change this was the uh, restoration efforts of giant Canada geese all up and down the flyways, and all of a sudden, uh, states that no longer uh, had migrating Canada geese. They had resident populations of geese. Uh, also, some of the changes in uh, in management of some of the some of the wetland areas, some of the refuges, changed that. And today, uh, there's probably a much broader migration of Canada geese through the through the flyways north to south than there than there was at one time. But there's still lots and lots and lots of Canada geese that will make a living in the Midwestern, uh, northernmost states, uh, as long as they've got food and open water. Now, Ken, there's a a, a pretty funny story that I've heard you tell. Um, I'm going to get you to tell it at some point, but I want to make sure it's appropriate context. Uh, it was it in relation to Canada geese and what was happening with those, or was it with respect to snow geese? This was actually uh, in the in the early to mid '70s, and it was related to snow geese because by this time, many of the uh, States to the south had reconciled to the fact that the Canada geese were not going to migrate there uh, in the numbers they once did. But then all of a sudden, uh, some of the Midwest refuges in the central part of the United States started to hold larger numbers of snow geese across, again, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa. Uh, they were staying longer in larger numbers. And the concern was is that here we go again. You got all the Canada geese short stopped, and now you're going to start to work on, on the snow geese. And uh, I was uh, a waterfowl biologist at that time, and I flew weekly surveys, uh, primarily the north, northern part of the state. And I had 
stopped for lunch in St. Joseph, Missouri, and was looking out uh, there from the airport cafe. And lo and behold, there's a plane from the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries Commission landed and pulled up there. And a good friend of mine by the name of Hugh Bateman gets out of the airplane, walks into the cafe. And when he saw me, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I work here, but I'd like to know what you're doing here. And he said, well, I've been sent here to see just how many snow geese you guys have concentrated up here in Missouri right now. And I said, well, you got a map. I'll show you where to find them. So you don't have to spend your time looking for them. And uh, it, it was kind of funny at that time. But then two weeks later, when I got a call from uh, the chief of the wildlife division, Mike Malosky at that time, and said, I want you to go to Texas and Louisiana and see if there's, if there are no snow geese down there, you go down there and look, these guys are claiming we've got them all. But uh, I mean, it was a great trip and I got to see some of my friends down there, but uh, uh, it was a time that, uh, uh, lots of consternation. Uh, I like to think that they, it's over in terms of the goose situation, but I think it was a matter of of birds adapting to changes in habitats on migration areas. Uh, when I grew up in northeast Arkansas, we never we never saw snow geese uh, uh, unless they were migrating over. But now today, uh, you'll have snow geese that uh, will winter in northeast Arkansas and southeast Missouri. And what has actually occurred while these birds used to winter on the, the, the Gulf Coast, uh, and a lot of that coastal area was converted to rice. The snow geese figured out that, uh, you know, we can make a living on a rice field. We don't have to go grub through the, through the, the marshes and, uh, along the coast. We can, we can do pretty well. And then they figured it out that uh, they grew rice all the way up the Mississippi Alluvia Valley into the southeastern part of, of Missouri. And so we're seeing uh, – uh, more snow geese stay for longer periods of time in the Midwest, just like we did with Canada's. And uh, there's some concern that uh, maybe the same thing could be occurring uh, with regard to mallard ducks. As these habitat conditions change, uh, as the climate changes, as we're seeing uh, milder and milder winters for longer periods of time, it'll be interesting to see what occurs. And the same can be said for white-fronted geese as well. I think we're, well, I don't think, I know we're seeing that also. And so having worked on the Gulf Coast, I've told that story a number of times or heard and heard that story a number of times and seen, shown the graphs of the decline in snow geese on the, in coastal Texas, once once the capital of snow goose hunting in North America. Uh, and now it's only a fraction of the number that were there historically. And um, you know, the same thing appears to be happening to some degree with white fronts moving in to, uh, you know, to exploit some of the rice that you talked about farther up the flyway. Heck, just the other day, I was within, it, within the city limits of Memphis, Tennessee, I saw a flock of about eight, uh, I believe they were Ross's geese on Shelby Farms inside the city limits of Memphis. Ross's geese. I mean, I, I, maybe that's a regular occurrence. Dale, did you ever see or Ken, did y'all ever see any of that when y'all were here? Yeah, no, no, not at all. But there are a lot of Ross's geese um, in uh, in the Midwest these days. Uh, historically, that wouldn't have been the case at all. Yeah, and so those those things, the birds, man. Uh, again, as I said not too long ago, that uh, is one of the aspects of this resource that that can be both frustrating and fascinating. And you know, it's if there's ever a group of birds that is going to to be able to adapt to some of these changing landscapes it's some of those that are in this some of the highly flexible species in the in the group of waterfowl and so it's kind of fun uh, fun to study those um dale 
anything to add to this discussion of sort of changing distributions, the frustration that it brings with it, the challenges that it brings with it? I know there's this term that uh, the some of those some of that time during the uh, in, in the, at least in the Mississippi Flyway, has been affectionately termed the Goose Wars and how states were, you know, kind of uh, pointing fingers at one another saying, you're holding all of our geese. And, and uh, that led to lots of lively debate, shall we say. Do you have any memories or any other insights you want to share here? Um, I have memories. Um, <laughs> You'd rather forget them. Some of them are very, um, but uh, no, my good. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that those distributions and the rate at which they're changing often has been, as, as we've discussed before, occurring faster than our ability to keep up with it. Um, if we've made an error over time, it's trying to maintain traditional distributions or harvest opportunity or whatever in the face of those changes. And sometimes we kind of kind of shoot ourselves in the, in the foot um, as we try to maintain some of those traditional aspects um, in the face of change. Um, it's important to recognize with Canada geese that uh, we just, at that point in time, uh, couldn't think of Canada geese the same way we thought about mallards, for example. Canada geese were from, from populations that used uh, certain portions of the breeding ground, pretty specific migration areas, and really specific wintering areas. And so managing them by population um, or by, by flock or segment uh, was a whole lot more possible at that point in time uh, than it is now is they're swamped by giant Canada geese and and the differentiation among populations and so on is not nearly as significant in importance as it was uh, 25 years ago. We'll move on here. We could talk about uh, the distributional aspects of, of waterfowl and waterfowl harvest management uh, at length, but in the interest of time here and trying to finish out on, on this particular episode, I have a few other topics that I want to talk about, one of which is sort of uh, was operating in the background uh, for much of the, well, for, for multiple decades, and I think it came to a head in the, uh, uh, well, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, you, you guys will tell me exactly here, lead poisoning. Uh, Ken, I want to pose this first question to you. At what point in your recollection or your uh, your experience, did lead poisoning really begin to uh, come to the forefront in terms of the discussions facing the, the flyway technical committees and councils? Uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, was my first introduction to the factor of lead poisoning among waterfowl. Um, my major professor had a long-term study going on Catahoula Lake, which is an infamous uh, area in terms of lead poisoning. Uh, it's a, a, a large, hard-bottom lake, uh, 25, 26 miles long, a couple of miles wide in Louisiana, heavily hunted, and lots of lead had been deposited there. It was also an area that was, uh, was allowed to uh, uh, free range of livestock at that time. And uh, lots of the livestock that ranged through there were hogs that had been turned loose. And this professor uh, was concerned about lead poisoning because there was large numbers of carcasses found every year that when they could find them before the hogs got to them, uh, they were determined to be have died from lead poisoning. Uh, and this is an area that uh, uh, traditionally wintered uh, 
tens of thousands of waterfowl, if not hundreds of thousands of waterfowl in, in certain times. And there were actually some collections done uh, in that area that I was involved with that found out that about 25% of the free-flying flock of waterfowl or the wintering waterfowl there carried what was considered to be lethal loads of lead in their digestive system. So I, I, I learned about it then, and then, of course, it was a very important part of uh, of some of the instruction that I had in terms of waterfowl, and this would have been in the in the mid '60s, but uh, uh, people like Frank Bellrose and others had determined uh, that uh, uh, pretty significant numbers of waterfowl were dying each year from ingesting uh, lead shot. This was shot that was deposited by hunters uh, hunting in an area, and if it, it was an area that was hunted heavily year in and year out, and you had hard bottom like they did at Catahoula Lake. That shot stayed available for years and years and years. And uh, uh, it, it was determined then that, uh, and, and some estimates, I think Frank Bellrose and some of his early work suggested that maybe as much as 10% of the of the fall and winter population of waterfowl succumbed to lead poisoning. That's pretty significant. And uh, so I, I guess I was aware of it early in my career and then became really aware of it uh, as we finally got to the point of trying to decide to do something about it. And when would that have been, Ken? When did it really come to the forefront of uh, the Flyway Tech Committees and Councils? Dale probably can remember that better than I do, but as I recall, it was in the uh, late 70s, uh, early 80s that uh, uh, there were efforts that came along to say, we've got to try to do something about this. And again, as we were starting to say, well, if Shooting waterfowl is not that big a factor, and there were people who estimated that maybe as many many ducks in some areas were dying from lead poisoning after the season than were shot during the season. Uh, uh, those of us in the professional ranks felt a responsibility to try to address that, and we began to work with some of the ammunition com- companies to try to to try to find a, a solution. Dale, what is your recollection of those discussions, the flyway tech sections, flyway council's involvement in in trying to address that issue? How much debate was there among the tech section? I know there was obviously a lot of consternation among our hunter constituent, but uh, just if you could uh, recall some of that discussion, some of your time associated with that issue. The professional community, for the most part, was not in disagreement about the, the the lead poisoning issue. Um, it had been with us for a long, long time. Uh, it had been well documented, uh, shoot, in the 19, uh, early in the 1900s. Uh, Alexander Wetmore, for example, did some work at Bear River, Utah, and, and found as many as 22 pellets per soil sample that he collected. And so, I mean, uh, it was well established. And from the standpoint of professionals, waterfowl professionals, I don't think there was any disagreement that it was, uh, was, was an issue. The question was more along the lines uh, of uh, how effective uh, would an alternative be to lead shot? And that's where, oh, as early as the 60s, there were uh, efforts to look at lethality studies um, of uh, steel shot as one of the alternatives. In fact, at that point in time, the only alternative uh, that was available. And so most of the issue was not so much about whether or not it was a problem, but the extent and the distribution of the problem. And so that's what led to a number of the studies in the 1970s uh, into the early 80s that looked at uh, 
the frequency of lead poisoning. Uh, we looked at, uh, oh, in Missouri, for example, we looked at 20,000 gizzards over a few years just to look at the incidence of lead shot. We collected birds that historically would have been called cripples. Uh, we went out after the season and picked up cripples. Well, virtually all those are lead poisoned. And so we began to look at blood lead levels, uh, uh, the level of blood of, of lead in bones, for example, uh, to try to get a handle on the relative frequency with which birds were exposed to lead. As, as Ken pointed out, Bellrose had estimated um, two to three percent of the U.S. waterfowl are lost to, per year to lead poisoning. That would have been in, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And so it had been here quite a long time. Our challenge beginning in the mid-70s or so was, well, can we find an alternative? And then what's the nature of the regulations that would emerge from that point going forward? Issues related, um, you know, by hunters and so on, and, and a lot of the professional public related to, well, just how many are dying? Uh, how effective are the non-toxic shot alternatives? What is the impact possibly? that those alternatives might have on equipment itself, uh, a barrel damage, scouring of barrels or choke expansion, those types of things. Um, there were a number of issues, some real, uh, some uh, maybe created uh, to um, distract us from the real issue, which was birds dying of lead poisoning. And Mike, one other thing I would mention that uh, complicated this further uh, the incidence of lead poisoning varied among habitat types. For instance, if you went into the coastal marshes of, of Louisiana or other places where there were soft substrates, the lead did not stay available to waterfowl as long as it, as it might in other areas. And not only that, but the diet that the birds were on. And one of the things that uh, determined pretty quickly is that if you've got birds that are on hard grain diets like corn, uh, they have a tendency to grind the, the lead shot up quicker and it's distributed into the body uh, early on and will cause lethality. So, And there were some people even in the profession that said, look, lead poison is not a problem in our part of the world. And uh, it probably was a problem. It probably wasn't as significant a problem as it might have been in uh, in some other areas. But uh, it's it was a real blessing that uh, – we stayed focused on trying to deal with it and ultimately came up with what today I think is a, a reasonable solution. At some point in the future, we'll probably have an opportunity. I'd certainly be interested in this personally, digging into the details of some of those, uh, some of the lead poisoning studies, some of the lethality studies and, you know, kind of chronicling that journey, those, that issue in a bit more detail. We're not going to do that here. What I want to do at this point, Dale, is ask you to kind of sum up what was the turning point in actually getting a, uh, a nationwide ban on lead shot for the use of waterfowl. Uh, so yeah, where are we there? Yeah, Mike, I think that's a really good question. And maybe not a surprise to folks was that it wasn't uh, the waterfowl management community uh, that uh, held sway with regard to uh, the uh, establishment of uh, nationwide non-toxic shot regulations. Uh, it was the National Wildlife Federation suit with regard to um, lead poisoning of eagles that, uh, that changed the whole picture. Um, uh, even though we recognized that waterfowl were dying from lead poisoning and we looked at alternatives and and by the late 1980s, had done a pretty good job 
um, identifying uh, lead shot alternatives, uh, non-toxic shot alternatives to lead. Um, but it wasn't until uh, that suit was filed um, and, uh, uh, and lead poisoning was uh, identified in Eagles that it really was the turning point. Mike, I'd, I'd like to mention at this point in time, and it's ironic how things occur, but uh, uh, the gentleman who who led that uh, that effort and actually worked with the lawyers to draw up that suit against the Fish and Wildlife Service with regard to eagles, which were endangered species, was Dr. Alan Wentz, uh, employed by the uh, National Wildlife Federation at that time. And Dr. Wentz, as many people know, uh, ultimately became the chief conservation officer for Ducks Unlimited. So uh, he started making contributions to waterfowl management uh, uh, long before he joined Ducks Unlimited. Uh, and this was one of, of, of what I would consider a landmark decision because uh, uh, I'm, I'm convinced, although it, it'll never be quantified, that we removed a significant mortality factor of ducks when we got lead out of the habitat that they utilize all through the fall and winter. I think it's significant, Mike. I don't know of a lead poisoning die-off in Missouri, which was the area we studied extensively uh, over a decade and a half. I'm not aware of a lead poisoning die-off in Missouri over the last 30 years uh, since the establishment of non-toxic shot re uh, requirements. Um, and it was significant prior to that. Yeah, I'll say amen to what Dale just said. Uh, Dalton cut off some of the uh, wetlands in St. Charles County uh, historically had uh, major losses of waterfowl due to lead poisoning. And as Dale mentioned earlier, we'd pick those up saying they're cripples, but then when you would uh, uh, do the analysis of the blood, the bone, and you'd find out that most of them were actual lead poisoning. It's good to hear those those kind of stories that have a, you know, a positive turn, have a positive outcome. I know that it was painful uh, making that transition. My dad was one of those people that lamented the change. I I can remember a lot of the remarks that he would make, wishing he didn't have to use steel, can't kill well with it and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, we that's, that, that is a, uh, a discussion for much more detail in terms of the advancements we've, we've made uh, in terms of lethality of, of shot shells. And so, yeah, it's good. Thank you guys for, uh, for sharing your, your thoughts and your experiences there and your observations about how it has improved the condition for, for waterfowl uh, across the country. So, so the implementation of that uh, of the ban on on lead shot in, in 1991 in the states, and then 1999 in Canada. Yeah, we achieved pretty significant accomplishment there. And so, uh, I, I do want to move on now with uh, from from that particular topic. I want to move to I guess you would say the the early 90s, another very significant time period. And the the item we want to talk about here is adaptive harvest management when it came onto the scene. We're and, and we are going to have some follow-up episodes here with Dr. Jim Nichols, where we will talk about adaptive harvest management in great detail. But I want to get uh, Dale and Ken's thoughts on adaptive harvest management as they were active in the state agency side of these discussions. Uh, so, I guess, Dale, I'll just ask you, talk about that time period, the 1990s. What was it, in your opinion, from your perspective, that that got us to the point where we said, um, where we said, you know, we, we need to really think about doing something different? Who And who are some of the key figures there? Um, good point, Mike. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that we, just on the heels of talking about the goose wars, if you will, and uh, 
and lead poisoning and steel shot and, and all, um, which were, were painful, mind you, um, uh, but we got through it and made great progress. Adaptive harvest management, um, although introduced with some degree of conflict as a backdrop, um, really has become uh, in much shorter order um, a, a significant change in how we manage waterfowl. As we mentioned earlier, uh, coming off of the uh, SEIS 88, where the primary theme there was uh, stabilized regulations, there was a, a, a work group, a stabilized regulations work group that was established shortly after that, that really began looking into the analytical and, um, and data-based processes that would support a regulations process that was much more um, explicit in terms of objectives and so on, much more data-driven than what had been in place prior to that. As with many things that we deal with in waterfowl management, uh, it, it is prompted by a bit of controversy. And uh, as you might imagine, coming out of uh, the mid-80s to early 90s, when we were uh, in the midst of severe waterfowl management um, regulations uh, that limited harvest, um, there was real interest in seeing uh, a liberalization whenever possible. And it was in 1994 that we really began to see a bit of a turning point in waterfowl management uh, opportunity, a waterfowl harvest opportunity. And the flyways unanimously in 1994 agreed that we needed to be able to see some liberalization that year. That's not really what occurred. And there was a fair amount of uh, anxiety back and forth. And what resulted in 94 uh, was, a, was an alternative of either season length or bag limit, a combination of the two, uh, for that 94 season. Folks were not happy. And as a result, um, the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, and here I'm going to uh, let Tim, Ken talk because uh, he was on that task force that said, uh, we're uh, essentially bottom line, we're not going to do this again. And uh, I'd, I'd turn it over to Ken at this point because it was, it was such an important turning point from the standpoint of, of, of an executive decision going forward that led to adaptive harvest management. Yeah, but uh, uh, I certainly would not want to underplay the importance of that working group that Dale mentioned and a working group upon which he actually served provided the foundation for making this move forward. But uh, Dale was correct. There was a, a the president at that time was out of the state of Arkansas, and there were some people in Arkansas not very happy about uh, uh, what was going on in terms of the regulations packages that year. And uh, uh, the meeting was called with the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service and one of the chief of staffs out of the out of the president's office. And uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> they looked at uh, the guy from the president's office looked at the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service said, we're not going to do this again next year, are we? And fortunately, we had an answer. And that answer was what came out of that working group. And uh, the the whole idea of adaptive harvest management with regard to waterfowl was a spinoff of things going on at that time within the wildlife profession of, a, of adaptive resource management. Put as simply as I can put it, because that's the way I understand it best, it starts with the idea of establishing a, a clear objective. And every decision that you make with regard to what you're going to do in terms of managing that wildlife resource, and in this case, the harvest of waterfowl, is directed towards that objective. And uh, it was uh, political interference, if you will, that 
caused what I think is probably one of the most important turning points in terms of managing waterfowl because it helped squelch a lot of the consternation that had been going on for decades about season links and bag limits and regulations and things like that. So it it was an opportunity that was there. And when a problem arose, uh, the folks on the technical side said, here is an answer to how to solve it. Dale, as Ken said, I, I, and I've heard you were a uh, significant participant in some of those technical, uh, in, in that task force, that uh, harvest management work group, um, not exactly, not, not recalling the exact name of that 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 group right now, but uh, uh, share your thoughts on adaptive harvest management. Why? Uh, I, I think you were in favor of it, but share your thoughts on it. Why did you think it represented a better way of doing things? Well, that's a good point, Mike. Um, the, uh, you know, I've, I've got to give credit uh, to the folks that were leaders of that effort. Uh, folks like uh, Fred Johnson, Jim Nichols, uh, Ken Williams, uh, I've, there, there were some folks that were involved in that that uh, made me feel like I'd gone back to graduate school for years. Uh, my goodness, what an education. As Ken points out, um, the whole idea of the adaptive management framework is that uh, we, we have uncertainty uh, about decisions, uh, but we're not very explicit about the nature of the decisions. Um, what is your objective what are the competing hypotheses? We talked earlier about additive versus compensatory mortality. How are those competing and how are we going to measure the outcome that helps us inform future decisions? And so what that whole process talks about then is, is limiting the number of options you might have rather than, uh, well, like we talked about earlier, uh, five days more than last year and one bird less in the bag. That that tinkering, if you will, with limit with bag limits and season lengths from year to year to year really doesn't help. So limit the number of management options. Be really clear about what the monitoring in a, in a feedback loop looks like. Um, how are we going to know? And then how are we going to use that information to update what we know about or what we think we know and have expressed in our hypotheses um, about harvest management and birds' responses to harvest management. And then how are we going to change our decisions in the future based on what we learn? Um, and so the whole idea of adaptive management, um, specifically related to harvest management, uh, involves um, the relative impact of, of additive mortality, if that's true, compensatory mortality, if that's true, um, the nature of density dependence, on the breeding grounds or throughout the year. Uh, so it really brings to focus those key questions uh, that have to be embedded in, in our objective uh, of how we manage birds and learn in the process of managing birds. The key aspect of adaptive management was the early discussions of adaptive harvest management that exposed the broad range of the objectives that were kind of embedded in the harvest management debate over, over decades. And it wasn't until that discussion with the harvest management working group that people began to say, well, my objective is to maintain relevant duck populations, or I want to maximize season length, or I want to maintain regulation flexibility, or gain knowledge about uh, maximum uh, opportunity or maximum harvest. And so just the fact that it led to that explicit discussion of objectives 
was really, really important part of this process. Dale, what did the level of acceptance and speed of acceptance by the different state agencies look like with regard to adaptive harvest management? Did it, was it rather sudden? Were there, was it variable? Some states' representatives uh, needed more convincing. Uh, how did all of that play out? How rapidly did people begin to kind of accept that maybe there's something to this AHM? Well, understand some of it was coincidence. Uh, some of it was that we had just come off of that extended period of restrictive regulations and anything that would keep us from having to go through that again uh, was was accepted um, much better uh, than maybe it would have been in the midst of, say, a, a liberal regulations or whatever. There were two key elements, I believe, to that early discussion. One was uh, we needed a champion at the technical level that uh, day in and day out. Uh, that was his job. And, and Fred Johnson, uh, who I have great respect for, was was key as the, uh, the, the primary um, uh, director, if you will, of that adaptive harvest management working group and uh, spent day in and day out um, uh, really uh, being the champion at the technical level and, and also, of course, at the at the administrative level. But there were also champions at the administrative level. And uh, I'd have to say uh, Ken Babcock was one of a number of those types of folks that that uh, I think if you were to characterize it as a bottom line, we don't have to convince everybody, but we've got to convince the few people that everybody listens to. Um, and that was the key part of, of that whole process was, was convincing the, the people that would champion the process both technically and administratively. And I, I think that was was key to this process being accepted at the rate it was. Again, I mentioned earlier that the establishing an objective uh, that everybody would agree to was the key to start with that. But as Dale pointed out, and you can't overemphasize it, it is also making a commitment to learn what what the decisions that you made what impact they had on the objective that you had agreed to at the start. And if you're not willing to make that a part of it, then, uh, then don't, don't, don't start in the first place. And then also, if you do learn that the decision you made was not in line with your objective, being will be willing to admit that and change your decision as that time comes. Uh, and, and over time, and we've got now 20 years of this, and each year we have learned a little bit more that'll make the next decision a little bit better than even the last one we made, but certainly a lot better than probably the first decision that was made 20 years ago. You know, Mike, I think it's, it's really notable that, um, and Jim Nichols was one characterized this whole process as being pre-adapted for adaptive harvest management. Uh, basically, we had a strong history of monitoring. We had population surveys and banding and harbor surveys. Uh, we had a a system wherein people already were used to have used to collaborating across state, federal levels, and so on and so forth, across flyways and so on. Um, we had a well-established uh, administrative and technical framework already in place, the flyway system. And so we had already developed um, a mutual trust in the motivations, a dedication to do the work, and a desire for a lasting outcome. And so those things in combination uh, like I said, as, as, as Jim Nichols uh, characterized it, we were pre-adapted to be successful. Um, that, along with the champions of the process, I think were key. Uh, Mike, I think it's probably important for us to acknowledge one key aspect, 
is that adaptive harvest management is not synonymous with liberal duck seasons. Uh, we've been extremely fortunate uh, over the last uh, two decades at least uh, that we've had uh, good habitat conditions, good population levels and so on. And adaptive harvest management hasn't necessarily been tested to the degree that it might under um, uh, deteriorating habitat conditions or declining populations. And so it's an incredibly important advent in waterfowl harvest management, but in some respects, um, it uh, may not be tested. And we certainly don't want to um, equate adaptive management to liberal duck seasons. That's a great point, Dale. And rest assured, one of these days, we will be tested with drought and lower population sizes. And so we'll um, we'll see how it goes at that point. That'll uh, be exciting times for sure. Maybe not necessarily uh, happy times, but that would be some things to talk about there for sure. Guys, at this point, I I want to begin wrapping up this series of episodes with the two of you. This has been an absolute pleasure of mine. One thing I will tell the listeners and acknowledge to the listeners that we we certainly understand that the nature of our conversations here with, uh, with Dale and Ken have probably had a bit of a Mississippi flyway flavor, understandably. Uh, we, do, uh, we do realize there are... Uh, important issues that have transpired through the years in in each of the other flyways. And we're going to make an effort to reach out to some folks in in those other flyways uh, to see what what key aspects we might want to add to some subsequent episodes. But uh, yeah, I had access to Dale and Ken, and I knew they were involved uh, and have been involved for many years in these important issues of harvest management. And uh, plus, I had easy access to their cell numbers, and so that made them a made them an easy target. Uh, but I I hope all of our listeners appreciate the insight, the depth of of knowledge that they brought to this. As a concluding question that I want to pose to each of you, uh, Ken, I'll I'll direct this to to you first. You know, looking back, you've been been in this profession. Uh, I'm not going to disclose the number of years. You can if you want. Uh, let's just say um, for quite a while. What are your most lasting memories uh, and appreciations for what we've been able to accomplish with uh, respect to harvest management and its role uh, in our overall goal of conserving waterfowl populations uh, in North America? Well, uh, that's a hard one, Mike, and I could probably talk a long time because I've got lots and lots of memories because I've, I've done this for lots and lots of years, bordering on 50 to be to be frank about it. But I guess if I was going to zero in on a couple of things, I would first say that it's uh, the pleasure of working with uh, professionals across this nation, across this continent for that matter, that have a concern and a care for the waterfowl resource. And while we did not always agree on things, we always agreed not to be disagreeable and that uh, we would focus primarily on the resource and the welfare of that resource more than anything else. The second aspect is that the, 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 the constituency that we serve, the waterfowl hunters, the people who love wetlands, the people who love other wildlife that are associated with wetlands that may like waterfowl for no other reason than to, than to look at them, have been supportive with their dollars, with their time, with their talents, with their energy in terms of making this profession uh, the success it is. Uh, we actually made a move, and I mentioned earlier the North American plan being the, 
the, in my opinion, the the watershed uh, moment when that plan was developed in the mid '80s. That plan also, as I said, called for updates periodically. And and in 2012, the waterfowl management community decided that we're not going to just update the plan in 2012. We're going to revise it. And we're going to take all the things that we have learned over the last 25 years and try to put them into play. And uh, the thing that we figured out is that we need to integrate the work we do on habitat. We need to integrate the work that is done in terms of managing the harvest. And more importantly, we're going to integrate and specifically recognize the social aspect, the social science, the people part of this waterfowl equation. So, you know, I, I would say those would be the two things, uh, the great professionals that uh, I've had the pleasure of working with uh, over all these years uh, for the welfare of waterfowl, but also the people that uh, put up their money and made it all possible and love this waterfowl resource as much as we as professionals do. And Dale, the same question to you. Yeah, I wish Ken hadn't read my notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Ken hit uh, the first point he made, I think, hits it right on the head. Uh, uh, the opportunity to work with waterfowl professionals, um, and not just in, in the flyway, uh, in the U.S., in Canada, um, whether they were from state agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Canadian Wildlife Service, Ducks Unlimited, um, the number of really dedicated professionals that we've been able to work with over the years is just unbelievable. It's intriguing that, uh, you know, I got out of graduate school in the mid 70s and thought, OK, their education's done. Uh, now I can start to work. Well, I think I mentioned earlier, I spent the next 50 years in graduate school. This profession gives us an opportunity, if we're open to it, to constantly learn new things. And what an incredible opportunity to have been able to uh, be associated with people that have that capacity to continue asking good questions and then strive to answer them. Certainly, uh, just doing this job has provided opportunity because of the migratory nature of what we're doing, um, uh, the, the birds involved and the habitats involved. Uh, I got to fly surveys in the, in the far north for 25, 30 years. And who gets to do that uh, unless you save up a long time to go on vacation there? Um, and so by the nature of the job, got to uh, visit some places and learn some things um, that uh, never would have had exposure to do likewise. The one thing I think that might be important for us to note also is that despite the changes in habitats and waterfowl distributions and the hunting landscape and everything else, there are some really cool things going on with regard to recovery of species. Uh, maybe not waterfowl, but if we look at the number of trumpeter swans, the number of bald eagles and and uh, other species associated with wetlands that we've been working on, they have really recovered nicely. And I'd like to think we had uh, a bit of a role to play in that process as well. So now I uh, can't imagine doing um, uh, anything different over the last uh, several decades. Uh, I would like to think I could have done it a whole lot better, uh, but boy, what an opportunity. So Mike, thanks for asking. Yeah, well, Thank you to each of you for those uh, most appropriate comments. Uh, and I can tell you already in my young career, I, I can, uh, it's like, like you were reading my notes as well. If someone were to have asked me that question, I don't have as, as lengthy a list and lengthy of a experience to draw from to, to come to those conclusions, but it's the conclusions are nevertheless the same. And so thank you for that. Um, 
you know, I, I also have to just say a, a personal thank you to each of you for your relentless is an appropriate word here, participation and commitment to recording these episodes. We have had no shortage of challenges. Uh, you know, if, if you would have if told me five years ago that I would have spent probably the better part of a, a com combined better part of a week preparing for and recording a series of podcast episodes with the two of you, I would say, no, you're crazy. But but I can tell you that I, I appreciate the opportunity to have done so. It's been certainly been the highlight of this year to hear some of these stories. Uh, getting connected on some of these episodes hasn't always been the easiest. I'll certainly admit that we have, have some technical challenges, but boy, what I've gotten out of it in terms of the research and what I've, what I've learned, what I've listened to and hearing your experiences has certainly been incredibly valuable and I appreciate it. And uh, certainly a highlight of my, my young career to have this opportunity. So thank you uh, personally for me to, to each of you. So thank you guys for that. Feeling is mutual, Mike, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, certainly. It goes both ways, Mike. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, it's been uh, fun to reminisce about uh, the, the opportunities and, and the like, and you've, you've presented us that opportunity. So I, I think this will be likely be the last time that we have you two as guests on this History of Harvest Management special series. Uh, if something comes up and we want to reconnect with you, though, like I said, I know where you are, but for now... We're going to be moving on to some additional guests. Uh, to listeners, I want you to know there will be many more episodes to come. Uh, please stay tuned. We have much more on the history of waterfowl harvest management to bring to you. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you for supporting the podcast. A very special thanks to our guest on this episode, Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg. They've been gracious with their time over all of these episodes. And I, I personally thank them for that, as well as thank them for being, being a friend. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work that he does on these podcasts and, and editing them and getting them posted for you, the listener. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and support of the podcast. Thank you for your feedback. And most importantly, for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.